Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Let's take a look at the trailer for the Fitzgerald Family Christmas. Hey, can I help you? Yeah, I'm uh, Jerry Fitzgerald. Just wanted to wish her a happy holiday. It's Christmas Eve, and we've got this thing going on with my father and my whole family that is going to need to be addressed tonight. Yeah, so you're going to need a drink. There's something I just want to discuss with the whole family. It's about Dad. What about Dad? He wants to spend Christmas with us here at the house. All I want to be is with my family at Christmas. Is that so unreasonable? Oh, no, that's definitely not happening. That sounds awesome. Does it sound awesome? You think you're ready to see the old man? No. I think we should ask Mom to let him come. Maybe there was a time for some forgiveness. Okay, I've thought about it. And the answer is still no. I am more than okay with that. You're all crazy. How does she know my Jerry? Oh, they met here yesterday. If you can visit, I'll see you. She seems like a nice girl. I thought I'd do them each a favor. Maybe you could stay and we could have a drink. But you never asked. What brought you here tonight to this fine establishment? I was waiting for my train. Oh, I got bad news. You, uh, you missed it. No, I missed my train. Right, so? There's gotta be another train. Not tonight. Hmm. He deserves to be there. Does he? This is a guy who walked down on his family. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, you know? Have your brothers and sisters figure it out for themselves. I know he hurts you, but he's still our father. An angel just got their wings. None for you, though, Pops. Guess there's nothing else to say. Can't we forgive our father just one day? Just one normal Christmas? I had no intention of breaking his family up. What I wanted to do is pull you all together. When he walked out on this family 20 years ago, I told him he would never set foot in my house again, and I am sticking to it. You're with your family. That's what we do. We take care of one another. God, we have to see you. <sighs> Please welcome editor at Huffington Post, Chris Rosen, and tonight's guest, filmmaker and actor, Edward Burns. Thank you. How you doing? Hello. Yikes. <laughs> so, nice to have you here at the Apple Store Good and stuff. Uh, we just watched a trailer for that. It's a great movie. I watched it last night. Uh, congratulations. Thank you very so, much. So, I know, you know, I, I've seen you say that it's a very personal film and stuff. I mean, what was the impetus for, like, the script and stuff? And, like, how did, like, how did it all come together? Uh, a couple of different things. Um, you know, I'd worked, some people probably have heard this story, I worked with Tyler Perry over the summer. Tyler had rewatched Brothers McMullen and basically said, you know, why is it that in 15 years you've never returned to the Irish-American working-class milieu of your first two films? And he said, you know, look at what I'm doing. You should think about super-serving your niche. You know, the audience that liked those first two films, if you made another one, probably would be, what would thank you for it? Um, and I thought, you know what, he's right. Why haven't I gone back to sort of re-explore that world and those themes? So I sat down, I opened up my laptop, I just wrote Interior of the Fitzgerald's Kitchen Day, started writing, and I didn't know where the story was gonna go. Um, but I had some loose idea that I wanted to do something um, uh, about a big Irish-American family. I have a friend who's one of nine, another friend who's one of 12. They've always told me these crazy stories about what it was like to grow up in a big house like that. 
Um, uh, so that was sort of my, my launching off spot. Um, and uh, I guess that was it. Right, okay. Yeah. And I know with your last film, Newlyweds, it kind of came together really quickly because I remember I saw it at Tri it closed right back and you kind of put that together in almost like a few months, it yeah. seemed like. So with this one, was it was the process a lot longer? I mean, like, how did... Uh, yeah, I mean, Newlyweds, yeah. you know, the, the, the our, our intention with that film was we wanted to try and make a super micro-budgeted film you know, we, we shot it on the 5D. We did a three-man crew. The whole idea was, you know, we're going to work with something resembling a screenplay, but, you know, much more of, you know, script, but a lot of scenes just outlined and, and kind of let's explore the thing as we went. This, given that it was so personal, so close to home, I did not want to attempt that. I wanted to go in with a, you know, a finished screenplay. Um, and also the shooting style of this film. You know, we wanted to make sort of a... Uh, uh, a sort of more classic film. So, you know, um, we spent a lot of time, my DP and I, William Rexer, um, we, you know, sometimes you'll think about, like, all right, given what the story is, given the, the tone, the themes, what is the look that we want to go after, and are there other films or filmmakers that have done that? And we kind of thought that Sidney Lumet was a guy that we should take a look at, and when we were screening some of his early films, we came across um, Prince of the City, which we had both loved, but in that, Lumet style is, you know, it's very straightforward. I mean, it's classic compositions, not a hell of a lot of camera movement, uh, and a lot of it takes place in suburban working class living rooms, kitchens, bedrooms. So we thought, all right, this is a, an interesting kind of um, palette for us to sort of work from. Um, but, you know, uh, that said, so a, a much longer process, getting the film ready and getting it up. Right. And, I mean, you like that, like, I'm sure you like that, like, going back and forth between styles and stuff, because it is a lot, to, and even the editing on this is a lot different than, like, yeah. it was in Newlyweds, because you had, like, the husbands and wives jump cuts and stuff in yeah. that one, and this one, it's a lot more, the scenes are playing out. I just think it's, it's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, m my stuff, tonally, uh, is, can pretty much all be the same. You know, it's like, I'm not the kind of a filmmaker that likes to jump from genre to right. genre. Um, you know, uh, I like, you know, they say about jazz musicians, you know, you got to own your tone. Uh, I, I kind of like my tone. That said, you know, uh, with those kind of dialogue heavy, um, character driven personal stories, um, you know, you, we don't really get to do much. And also when you make micro budgeted films or low budget films, you know, you don't get to play with the camera the way, you know, uh, the big guys do, right. if you will. So it's a matter of just finding sort of like the little shifts that you can you can play with. Right. So when you're writing this, I mean, obviously, like, you know, you've seen the trailer there. It brings together a lot of people who have been in your films before, both like, you know, Mike and like Connie from the early stuff and then like Carrie and Caitlin Fitzgerald and from the newer stuff. So, I mean, when you're writing this, do you are you writing for these actors or are you hoping that they'll all do it? I mean, how did that work? Like, are you like, oh, I want Mike... I'd love Mike to play this part, or Connie would be great for this. I mean, how does that work for you? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, um, sometimes I'm writing with a specific actor in mind. Sometimes um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm writing, and I think, all right, there are two or three different characters uh, that maybe Carrie Bechet could play. And then during the process, you start to sort of hone in on the one that, all right, this is going to be right for Carrie, this will be right for Caitlin. Uh, with this film, I mentioned those two, because I definitely was writing for those two. Um, and then I'd also spoke uh, a couple of months earlier with Mike McGlone about potentially, I had started to think about a Brothers McMullen sequel. Right. So I started to talk to Mike about that, 
I mentioned this other thing that I was working on Fitzgerald, and he said, well, you know, why wait till then? You know, is, why, why don't we work together sooner? And I thought, you know, great. So I started to write that part for him. Uh, then when I had them, uh, because the film is about a family reunion, I thought, let me take a look at all the films I've done. I've done 10 films now. And why don't we make the casting sort of a, a you know, like a film, my filmmaking family reunion. And we went through every film that I've made and cast at least one actor from every film. And I think there's maybe two or three actors in the whole piece that I had never worked with before. But everybody else is our, our old friends. And it's kind of the added bonus we got from that is the fact that the minute we started to shoot, you got the sense that these people had some real history. Right. Um, and that's due to the fact that people like Mike McGlone and Anita Gillette, who was also in She's the One, you know, they've known one another for 17 years. Right. Carrie and Caitlin have become great friends. So while they're not siblings, they do have real friendships and real history. And I think, I mean, this is probably going to sound crazy, but I actually think it helps that they it, they all kind of, based on that chemistry, it's almost like they're related. You know, they look, you just start to think they look like related. It's like this is believably a family, which is fun, I think. It, like, at least, yeah. for, I mean, like I said, I could be completely no, it was weird crazy for thinking that, but they do kind yeah. of look alike. Um, it gets even weirder because someone said on set that Anita Gillette looks kind of like my mom. Okay. And then someone said, like, uh, Ed Lauder, who plays the father, they're, you know, it was like his mannerisms were similar to my dad. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll use one of my parents' old photographs in the film. And then instead I thought, well, you know, years ago I cut together their wedding yeah. footage. Maybe there's a place to use that in the film. So in that right. clip then, where yeah. they, uh, you know, I, I wrote that scene late after we were already on set and I was seeing the similarities and worked it in that way. Right. Now, I know we don't have that, that clip, but we do have a clip of uh, Caitlin and Carrie in the car. And, think, yeah, and, and Tom uh, Guyron. Right. And I think we could run that. That'd be great. Did you guys even know he was sick at all? No. But I think it's pretty fucking weird that Aaron knew for like a year and never said anything. Yeah, well, Aaron's fucking weird. I think we should ask Mom to let him come for dinner. Uh, look, call me cold-hearted prick. I'm not feeling that much sympathy for him. Why? What did he do that was so bad? <laughs> he walked out on us? He never came to one of our birthday parties. You know, I don't got one picture of me and him together. Not one. Shit, he wasn't even there the day I was born. No, I know. He didn't do shit for me either, but he is our father. And he's going to be gone in a few months. And, you know, I feel bad for him for that. But I don't think that's a reason for me to forgive him. Me neither. We forgave you. What are you talking about? What did I do to you? All the shit that you did before you went to rehab? Come on. What? What shit did I do? You were that fucked up? You don't, you don't remember? You lied to me? You stole from me? And that's not even the worst of it. Connie. What? We said we weren't going to talk about it. Sharon, what, what did I do to you? You and your crackhead friends broke into her apartment and trashed the place. I did not. Yeah, you did. <sighs> I'm sorry. <laughs> It's okay. It's fine. You were sorry right when you did it. It's okay. Sharon, I don't remember doing that. God, I don't want to talk about this. We don't have to talk about it. Cyril, you're my brother. I love you, and I forgive you. 
See? That's all I'm saying. You can forgive him. Can't we forgive our father just one day? Just one day, just one fucking normal Christmas. Once in my life. So you can tell it's not love actually. It's not that kind of Christmas movie. But you were saying, we were talking about this before uh, this started, and how that's like, I mean, that's a key scene in the film, and it really kind of speaks to, the, I mean, the theme is really forgiveness, and also kind of how, I think, how anger takes different forms as, you know, as different ages. Like, they're the youngest, uh, Carrie and, I, Tom, I'm sorry. Yeah, but, Tom. <laughs> and, um, you know, they have the most anger towards their father, and, and kind of as it goes up the line, it's a little more understanding, which I thought was really interesting as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I mentioned, uh, you know, some of my childhood friends who came from these big families. There was another friend of mine who talked about, came from a big family, uh, that talked about uh, his older siblings hated their father because when they were born, the father was 21 and a drunk and they had no money and he beat the shit out of them. And by the time numbers seven, eight, nine showed up, you know, he had gotten sober, educated, and was making money, and the, and the younger kids thought he was the greatest dad in the world. So I just love the idea that under one roof, in one family, you could have two very different sets of parents, different sets of relationships, and um, uh, just different feelings about, you know, your, your parents. And that's kind of where I uh, jumped off from. And, you know, the, the other thing that I wanted to look at with Christmas is, you know, Christmas is always that time where... You know, friends of mine will say, you know, if you could just get through the holidays and not have that conversation, you know, if that thing doesn't come up, you know, uh, Kerry says in here, you know, it's all right, I forgive you, I don't want to talk about it. You know, you just want to get through without the ugly stuff potentially coming up. But, you know, the, the movie, as I said, it's about forgiveness and it's like, and healing. And the thinking was, you know, in order to heal, you got to sort of address the wounds. So the movie, you know, you got seven siblings and everybody's got some wounds. Right. And the other thing I liked about it as a, as a viewer is, I mean, I feel like, you know, you, you take takes place over a few days, which I always think that's always a great, I love when movies take place over a few days, but the other, you know, it, it doesn't really pander to the audience. You don't over explain things. You know there's history with this family and stuff. And, and I don't, is that, do you think that you're able to do that because it's an independent and not a studio production? Because I've seen, uh, I'm not naming names, but I've seen films that I've loved this year that kind of, have done that hand-holding thing where there's like someone's talking about gambling and then all of a sudden we're going to go to like explain what the term is like it's almost like kind of like you could just hear that studio note where they're like this needs to be explained because the audience yeah. is not going to pay attention or follow this so I mean do you find that kind of freeing when you're writing as like you know you don't have to necessarily worry about studio influence as much let's say I, I mean it's the reason that I I, <laughs> I make the you know I, I've stayed independent right. all these years you know I constantly talk about you know there are two lists of compromises like a filmmaker has to work off of. You know, the, the compromises you make when you make lower budgeted or micro budget films like, like me is, you know, you're, you know, you're not, you're going to have to make a film in 20 days or 15 days. Uh, you're not going to have, uh, you know, steady cam and, you know, uh, 50 feet of track and cranes. You're not going to work with movie stars. And if you're not going to work with movie stars, odds are you're not going to get a major theatrical release. You know, there are going to be certain things that your, let's say, your production may suffer from. The plus side that you get is you don't get those notes. You work with the actors you want to work with. Uh, and you get to make the film that you want to make. You know, the other list of compromises, when you do get a lot of money, 
Um, you know, you get all those things that I talked about, you know, uh, all the toys and the stars and everyone gets paid very well. But, you know, you don't get to make your film. You know, you don't get to make personal films. Um, so it's really just, you know, what, what, you know, what kind of filmmaking are you interested in? Right. And for this point of view, I mean, at least you still get, you know, you do have stars. Connie Britton is a huge oh, yeah, star. Yeah, right, yeah. For, I mean, I mean like, right, for, you're, you're in a, because you've been doing it so long, it's a nice position. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you, we mentioned that kind of like independent thing you've been doing really well with the on demand and stuff and, and like kind of been, I feel like a trailblazer in that, or at least out in front, like where your films have really been playing to that home audience and like finding an audience and doing really well. I mean, where do you see that? market going in like five do you where do you see that going next like what's the next step for on demand doing uh, I, I don't know i mean all i know is that the audience um you know a younger audience is totally comfortable watching films on their devices and seem to have no problem with it um and now you know more and more sort of let's say you know older folks like even like my dad now like is addicted to Netflix on his iPad, uh, <laughs> which is something that you know two years ago you know he and I neither no no, no one in our house could fathom that. Um, so I think the, the the world is changing. I think the big change that will come is some version of the direct to consumer sale. You know if you look at what you know I guess starting with you know Radiohead was probably the first band. Uh, that did it with uh, In Rainbows, I think was the name of that yeah. record. Nine Inch Nails had a lot of success with it. And now tons of bands do it. And then Louis C.K. most famously recently did that. I think you're going to start to see, um, you know, not only just indie films, but there's going to be some version of that um, where that, that middleman is cut out. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's where we're going. Yeah, and I think that's probably fun for the consumer, at least, also. You it's know. fun for the and consumer. For the, I think it's fun for, for the, the, whether it's the musician or the comedian or the filmmaker. So you've done now 11 films. I mean, how do you feel like, and you've, uh, you know, obviously directed and acted, and how do you feel you've developed as an actor yourself? Because I think you're, you're really good in this, and I mean, how is... Thanks. Like, how have you developed, like, you know, how have you learned to direct yourself? I know that's tricky. I know when, like, Ben Affleck was going around talking about Argo, he was, like, that was a very popular question to him, I guess. I mean, like, yeah. how, how have you, like, developed as an actor under your own direction? I mean, I, I, uh, I think I've been lucky as an actor in Hollywood films that I've gotten to work with, you know, some really good filmmakers and got to work opposite some really great actors mm -hmm. and... Um, I, you know, I uh, never had any ego about going up to a Dustin Hoffman and saying, all right, how, you know, how did I do in that scene? You know, wh where did it work? Where didn't it work? And, you know, talking to them about, you know, how I might become a better actor. Um, so that's just a, that's a great bonus to have. Um, but for me, in my films, um, I I'm lucky. I have the guy that, that has produced all of my movies since Sidewalks of New York, a guy named Aaron Lubin. That's, you know, we're going on 12 or 13 years working together. And my director of photography, a guy named Will Rexer, I think this is our seventh film together. Um, uh, we, before we go into production, we kind of identify the scenes that um, are going to be a, more of a challenge for me as an actor or where, let's say, I'm out of my comfort zone. You know, if I'm playing a sarcastic asshole, I can kind of, you know, I know, I know how to hit those beats. But, you know, like a scene in this film with um, Connie Britton and I in the car... It was a pretty tricky scene, and that I, I kind of hand over the reins to them on those scenes and say, look, you know, it's, gonna, it's, it's up to you to let me know whether or not we get this. Um, and they're both, you know, I mean, 
Um, they've both been with me a long time, and they're both, you know, uh, real students of film and could direct their own movies, right. I'm sure. And I know we probably have to start taking questions soon, but do you want to maybe run that other clip of uh, Ed and Mike? We just uh, okay, we have yeah. one more. Yeah. I just thought of it. It's a good scene. What a night. My girlfriend leaves me for my sister's boyfriend and dad. But it really hasn't even sunk in yet. He does not seem that sick. Jerry, we got to make this happen. We don't have a say in this. Did you even talk to mom? Yeah, yeah, of course I did. Right, and I get both of their point of views and I'm not taking sides. My man, you got to have a horse in this race. Oh, do you think it should be dad's? He deserves to be there. Does he? This is a guy who walked out on his family. His life had changed. Overnight, he's practically a millionaire after he sells the company. I still don't understand how that gives you an excuse to walk out on your wife and kids. We were only going to be holding him back. He had a dream. He had to go for it. Great, so this dream, as you put it, can't involve us? You know, you say you understand both points of view, do you? He had to make a choice. Yeah, and he made the wrong choice, clearly. So he fucked up. He knows it. Give him a break. Think about how heartbreaking this must be for him. Think about how heartbreaking this must be for mom, dredging up all these old feelings again. I feel guilty that I even brought it up. I wish I would have just nipped it in the bud, told dad it's not going to happen, no shot. Jerry, you got to talk to her again. Look, it's not up to me. This is mom's call. I get, um, first, first part about that, was it hard to get clearance for all the Christmas songs in this? Because you do have a lot in there. Was that difficult? What we did was, when we were thinking about what Christmas tunes yeah. uh, to, to use, we went online and looked uh, what Christmas songs are in the public domain. Okay. And there's about four or five dozen very well-known Christmas songs. Yeah. Um, so then my composer, P.T. Walkley, and I... You know, in the film, you probably got some sense. It's, you know, there's some comedic moments in it, but it is not a comedy. I mean, it's more a melancholy uh, right. tale, like a heartfelt and sort mm -hmm. of sad ending. Yeah. Um, so thinking about that, we were like, all right, well, we, we should embrace that. So um, we went through those tunes and thought, well, you know, what are... A lot, it's funny, you know, most Christmas songs are pretty melancholy. Right. Um, so we had a lot to choose from. And then we just picked the ones that... Um, P.T. and I sort of thought fit the film, uh, uh, I guess, um, the best match, the tone of the film. And then he went in and, and did his score. And then we had, you know, maybe there's seven or eight moments in bars and things where we needed some other tunes. And that we just, we went out to our friends who are musicians and said, you know, here's the 12 songs that you can pick from. <laughs> um, would you mind just going in and doing a version for us? Right. So um, that was pretty lucky. Yeah. yeah. And then working with Mike again, obviously you have not worked with him on screen in a while. I know you did the, the short film uh, at Tribeca this year yeah. with him also. But so, I mean, what was that like? Like, you know, getting back on screen with him and acting opposite him and stuff? I mean, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it was great. It's been yeah. 17 years since yeah. McMullen and she's the one. Uh, for years, we've been talking about uh, trying to find something to do together. And it's, you know, I mean, it's funny. We only have a handful of scenes in this mm -hmm. film together. And we didn't get to have any like the, the repartee that we kind of like. So. We are going to do the McMullen sequel, and I kind of, I purposely sort of kept us at, you know, uh, in separate corners in this film so that uh, 
uh, I could save some of that stuff for the, the McMullen sequel. And you mentioned that. I mean, like, we've seen, like, you, I've heard you say this before, you've seen that a lot of independent films have kind of done that. Like, you know, the Richard Linkletter before Sunrise, before Sunset films, and Kevin Smith Clerks, too. And even, we were just talking before, like, not necessarily independent, but Judd Apatow spinning off yeah. from Knocked Up. I mean, so that's actually, it's a great, I think it's a great idea. And, like, you know, people like these characters, you might as well bring them back. I mean, so how far along are you on that? And, like, what's the status, I guess? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I've got almost, the whole outline for the screenplay done and I'm pretty religious about writing my outlines um, so uh, the outline for the most part is done I have this other film that hopefully will shoot in the spring so after that film I'll go back in and write the script to McMullen and uh, you know 2015 is the 20th anniversary so the thinking is We'll shoot it uh, early 2014 and have it ready for, you know, 20 years later. Right, which is nice. Yeah, it'd be pretty cool. <laughs> um, I just saw it's Quentin Tarantino did a Playboy interview uh, this week, I guess, hawking Django Unchained, and he was saying how he wants to do, like, maybe three more movies, and that's also kind of become in vogue with directors like, you know, Kevin Smith retired, Steven Soderbergh is retiring, Tarantino maybe will retire. I mean, do you ever think of that? Like, what kind of, do you ever, like, like I want to make this many films and give it up? Or, I mean, do you have tons of stories you want to continue to tell? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I have tons of stories <laughs> I want to tell. And, you know, my, my stories are, uh, you know, they're pretty small stories. Um... You know, I sometimes feel like I'm more of like the short story writer than the than the novelist. Um, you know, my filmmaking hero has always been Woody Allen, and I I look at that career and year after year he you know he bangs another one out, and I think it's you know I mean the, what I love is I mean making movies when I was a kid in film school, I wanted it so badly you know, and now that I I get to do it. You know, you have to fight tooth and nail to get these movies made. But man, when you do, there is uh, there is no day that is as much fun as a day on set. So I've made you know some movies that have worked. I've made you know m more than a few that haven't worked. But every one of the experiences has been you know highlights of my life. So um, for me, it's 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 less important the end result. And you know, I guess the thing you know, it, it's much more about the process. Right. And so, I mean, this maybe is not the, I mean, so do you have one that, what ones, not to say what one didn't work, but I mean, what, what do you think is like your best, like, do you ever look at them like, what's your best one? Is it too much of a Sophie's Choice or do you like, this one I really nailed, like this is the one. I think the film, you know, I mean, I'm always going to say the one that you're working on. Right. You know, because it's your, your, your new girlfriend. Uh -huh. um, but I think the one that, the, you know, like when you sit down and you have your first idea of what a movie might be and you have some images in your head. Uh, Sidewalks of New York is probably the film that I've made that I think sort of uh, the the film uh, most closely resembles what I thought or what I thought I was going to do. Yeah, I I, I would also agree with that. I think yeah, that's, that's a great favorite. yeah, it's yeah. a great one, and I think that should get more play. You know, it seems very under it's actually become very underrated where it's like people don't think of it being you know as maybe they should because yeah. it's really great. Um, so I think we're ready for some questions from the audience. Uh, Just if you, go ahead and like. raise your hand. We do have a microphone. We're going to bring the house lights up so we can see everybody. And I'll come right on over to you. So hand up. Oh, I see one all the way over on the left side in the second row. Coming on over. And we're just waiting for a thumbs up from our camera guy over there. There we go. What's that about, right? Hey, Ed. Um, How you doing? I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the experience of uh, making doggy bags 
and um, that idea of going back to making shorts. And then if you could t talk a little bit about, you know, with this idea of digital distribution becoming, you know, making it much more accessible for filmmakers and the idea that audience attention spans in general are shrinking, do you see any path forward where filmmakers are going to be able to monetize shorts or is it still just a, a lost cause? Yeah, I think it's a lost cause, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, I love short films, um, and I hadn't made uh, a short film since, you know, film school. But we did this thing last year for uh, a short film called Doggy Bags, where uh, there was a contest um, where people gave a movie pitch idea, and then based on the winning idea, I wrote a short script and got to work with McGlone. Um, so a lot of fun, but a good, just a good way to exercise your muscles. As far as digital distribution, um, it's funny, I just, you know, getting some, like, press in from this movie, and there was something that was a quote of mine from 2007, I'm talking about Purple Violets, and, uh, you know, Purple Violets was the first movie that was ever uh, released exclusively on iTunes. And uh, in the quote, it was something that, you know, like, I guess when we were doing press, all the, the people that I sat down with, you know, the vast majority, eight out of every ten folks were like, are you kidding me? <laughs> no one is ever going to watch a movie on their computer, let alone their phone. And that's 2007. So, you know, here we are five years later. Obviously, that's not the case. So, I, you know, if I could tell you where we're going to be in five years, I wouldn't be making micro-budgeted films, you know. Um, but I do think... It, if you look at that dramatic shift and the fact that, you know, people are, are, are much more comfortable uh, or, and a lot of times prefer watching films at home, um, I, I don't know where it's going, but that clearly it's, you know, it's coming big time. Yeah. yeah. Any other questions? Okay. I see, I see in the back row, we'll go there and then we'll have one right in front of them. I'm going to be right behind you. Hi, Ed. Um, I have a question about your process in writing your films. Uh, do you arrive at the circumstance situationally? Do you go out and you know what you're writing for? Or do, or do you conjure that up in your head and just kind of factor it into your screenplay before the process of uh, creating the, the entire experience? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the vast majority of my screenplays, I usually write thinking about uh, it's like maybe one of three things. You know, sometimes it's just environment. Uh, a movie I made uh, called No Looking Back, I really just wanted to write a movie about, you know, a beachfront seaside town in the winter. And that's where I started. I didn't know where I was going. A lot of times it's just a singular character. I mean, as I think about Fitzgerald, really the, the, the one character that, you know, when I sat down, I didn't know where I was going to go, but I've had this idea of a kid... A kid, I'm fucking 44. Uh, a guy um, who, uh, uh, you know, his father walked out on the family or his father had died, and he had to become sort of the patriarch for his siblings and had to sort of um, forego his own dreams in order to do the right thing. Um, so a lot of times it'll, uh, it'll start with a character. Um, but then what I do is... Uh, I, as I said earlier, I do believe in outlining and a pretty uh, sort of extensive outline where um, it's almost, you know, I break it into three acts. I outline every scene. I try and do bios of the characters and stuff that, that I, I know I'll never even use in the screenplay. The other thing that I'll do is 
depending on maybe the theme that I want to explore or one of the situations like newlyweds, which was a, about you know, a newlywedded couple that were in their second marriages. Uh, I went out and just, you know, if I was out to dinner or at a party, you know, someone would inevitably would say, what are you working on? I'd tell them. And they'd say, oh, you should talk to that person. So um, I'm constantly going into like investigative reporter mode, picking people's brains to try and steal from their lives. Um, and then only after I feel like I've, I've, I know the world and the characters inside out, then do you give yourself the, you know, you, you give yourself the gift of writing dialogue. Because, you know, the dialogue for me has always been the most fun. Um, and the process for a first draft is anywhere between three and six months. So, Do you, and you have all that backstory and stuff, do you end up giving that to the actors at all? Or do you not like to, like, cloud their heads with other stuff like, like too much information? It really maybe? depends on the actor. It depends on the character. Sometimes I do. But a lot of times, you know, my process with the actors, especially, you know, the last three or four films is um, I, because I've become... Uh, friends with a lot of them and writing for them, I bring them in much earlier in the process. So, uh, you know, you have that sloppy first draft, which isn't really a first draft. I'll give it to them and say, All right, you know, this is where I think I'm going. I think this is what's going on with your character. Disregard all the dialogue that's sort of placeholder stuff. But let's talk about backstory, who she is, where she's going. And, you know, I, I, you know, I think the reason that you know, the last couple of films have felt maybe just a little bit more honest and real is the fact that, um, you know, I have these actors sort of uh, working with me, especially the, the, the actresses, making sure that those women feel authentic and yes, a woman would react that way in that situation. She would speak that way. Um, so that's part of it. Any other questions? We have time for two more questions. I see one right here in the third row and then we'll come up to the front after that. Hello. Hello. I was wondering when you're researching the other Irish American families or your friends, you found kind of the bigger the family, the more maybe lack of communication amongst siblings. Um, and then they kind of have to confront those issues finally when the father comes back in the storyline. But otherwise, it's a huge elephant in the room situation. Did you find that as a common theme with your friends when you were researching it? Or is that something that you really want to address with Irish American families? Uh, no, I don't think it's specific to an Irish-American experience. I mean, you know, we, we've taken the film out at a bunch of different film festivals, and folks come up to me all the time, and they're like, I'm not Irish, I'm not Catholic, and how the hell did you know what was going on in my family? So I think families are families. It doesn't matter, you know, wh where you're coming from. We all are dealing with the same, you know, uh, all the good stuff and all of the dysfunction, you know. Um, so it, it really, and this was a film where I, I really, I didn't, as I was writing it, I didn't go out and do any research. You know, I mean, I, I grew up, you know, in a Irish Italian working class neighborhood, um, and you know, have been sitting on, you know, these types of stories, situations, and characters for 15 years. Um, so the minute I started writing, all of this stuff that I guess has been in my subconscious mind just started coming out, and a lot of it even from my own family. So. We've got our final question right here in the front row. Hi, Ed. Hey, um, how you doing? <laughs> good. Um, we're a newer production company, and our average budget budgets have been about $5,000, and I kind of wanted to see what kind of advice you can give us for starting out. Uh, you're making short films, or? 
Um, well, the cut, right now we're starting with shorts, and then um, my husband's been writing his full uh, screenplay, so that's where we want to branch out to. I, I, I mean, the, the, the thing that young filmmakers uh, have that, you know, the, the, that, you know, those of us who came up in the 90s did not have the same advantage is, you know, when we made our low-budget films, we shot on film. You know, you guys have these incredible digital cameras now, um, and you can get a great-looking image at almost no cost. So my advice would be just, you know, keep your costs down. And at 5000 you're keeping them down. But just keep making movies. I mean, the only way you learn how to make movies is by making movies. I know, you know, I mean, I'm a much better filmmaker now because I, I've been doing this for a while. I only wish when I was a kid starting out that I had been able to just cut my teeth on making, you know, I would have made dozens of 10-minute short films if I could get my hands on like a 5D. Um, that wasn't an option. And, you know, for you guys, it's, it's the cost of, you know, picking up a guitar and writing a song or, you know, sitting down and trying to write your first short story or poetry or if you're a painter. I mean, the great thing that's happened is now it's the first time, you know, in filmmaking history where making films doesn't have to be a capitalistic enterprise. You know, every other, you know, generation, filmmaker, kid out of film school, whatever, up until two years ago, if he was going to make a feature, he had to be thinking about a story that could at least make its budget back. Because most times you needed millions of dollars. That's over. So you can go and make whatever story you need to tell. You know, I mean, it might cost you five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. Someone might want that money back. But there's, you know, folks out there, you know, think about what your tuition for film school over four years would be. Let's say you didn't go to film school, you took all that money, how many great films you could make? Something to think about. All right, well, thank you. Thank you, Ed. Uh, Fitzgerald Family Christmas is out on VOD November 21st, and I believe it's theatrically out on December 7th. You should all check it out. It's really great. So cool. thank, thank you, thank you, you so much for coming and everything. Thank you. Thank you.